Well, good morning, and thanks for listening in here at Prairie View Christian Church. Uh, I'm very happy to be preaching to a bunch of pieces of paper uh, taped to chairs, and I will talk about that more here at the closing prayer. Uh, But I certainly wish that you were all here. Uh, Looking at the papers is nice, but looking at you would be better. But here we are. Now, last week we started our new sermon series called Songs of Praise, Timeless Lessons from Classic Hymns. We began by simply considering the greatness of God, partly inspired by the lyrics of the hymn, How Great Thou Art. But we also saw just a few of the countless examples of God's greatness in Scripture. And we read some moving words from Christians before us seeking to describe God's greatness. And while it would be foolish to think that we can sufficiently sum up God's greatness in just one sermon or in just a few words, for our purposes, we said that God's greatness may be seen in his power and in his goodness. And God's power and God's goodness are perfectly embodied in his son, Jesus Christ. It's because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us that we can call this great, powerful, good God our loving Father. But today we move from discussing God's greatness to focusing more on God's grace. Our classic hymn for the morning is Amazing Grace. Some estimate that this hymn has been performed up to 10 million times per year and has been recorded and even updated repeatedly. Now, we did talk briefly about God's grace last week when we discussed God's goodness, but today we'll give God's grace a much fuller treatment. And by the end of today's sermon, I hope that we'll all agree That God's grace really is nothing short of amazing, and it really is worth singing about. So open your Bibles. We'll be in multiple areas of Scripture this morning, so be prepared to follow along. But before we do any reading, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for week seven of this predicament that we find ourselves in. It's so easy to focus on the negatives, uh, so easy to focus on the things that we've lost, and and those losses really are legitimate. Uh, However, we still have much to be grateful for, much to be thankful for, and one of the many things we can be thankful for is some semblance of togetherness uh, as a church. Even though we're all at home, uh, even though it's been weeks and weeks and weeks since most of us have seen each other, We are still brothers and sisters. We are still a church. And that brings some peace of mind in the midst of this crisis. And not even a pandemic can break the bonds that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. And not even a pandemic can break the bonds that we have with you as our Father because of who Christ is and and what Christ has done for us. And so even though we are on week seven of being apart I pray that we would not forget that we are still, in a sense, together. We are still a family. We are still unified. And we still have much to be thankful for. And so, Father, I pray that you would be with us as we once again uh, sit and listen and read through your word. Uh, I pray that you would use it to shape us how we need to be shaped. 
those of us who need to be encouraged would be encouraged. Uh, those who need to be convicted would be convicted. Those who need to be comforted would be comforted. And those of us who need a little bit of all of those things, uh, I pray that your word would accomplish that this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who speaks through your word. Uh, And Father, thank you for the relationship that we have with you and with each other through your son, Jesus Christ. Again, none of that changes, uh, even when we're apart. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name, and we thank you for your amazing grace. Amen. Well, last week we began with reading the hymn for the day and then diving into some of its history and backstory. But today I want to save the lyrics and the history of Amazing Grace until the end. Instead, we're going to start with some of the basic truths we see about God's grace in Scripture. Now, we throw the word grace around quite a bit in the church. But what does grace and what doesn't grace actually mean in the Bible? What is Scripture God's inspired and authoritative revelation of himself tell us about God's grace. Well, at its root, the biblical word grace could be defined as unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. You might associate the word grace with another biblical word, mercy. These words are often used together. Now, these two words, mercy and grace, are closely related, but they aren't exactly identical. Mercy is not giving someone the punishment they deserve. That's where we get the idea of a mercy rule in sports. But grace goes a step further than mercy does. Grace is not just withholding punishment. Grace is giving a totally undeserved gift or blessing. In the Old Testament, the word for grace is often translated as steadfast love. God's grace in the Old Testament is most evident in his relationship with and his actions toward the people of Israel. God graciously chose them in the first place, even though they were no better than any other nation. God graciously and repeatedly saved them from self-inflicted harm. And God graciously, generously, faithfully loved them, even though they were not always loving to him. In the New Testament, the word grace is almost always used in direct relation to our eternal salvation through Christ. Of all the writers in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses the word the most by far. In Paul's mind, the good standing that we have with God the Father, purchased for us by Jesus the Son, applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, is grace. It is unmerited favor. It is a completely and utterly undeserved gift from God given to sinners. So, we've defined our terms. Grace is God's unmerited favor toward sinners. We see it primarily in the Old Testament in his relationship with Israel. 
And we see it almost exclusively in the New Testament in our salvation through Christ. But how else might God's grace be seen in the Bible? What are the various ways we see God's grace at work in our world? And then one question that still remains. Why do we need God's grace to begin with? Well, in Scripture, we see different expressions of God's grace. And it may be helpful to categorize them. Number one, we start with what's often referred to as God's common grace. What does common grace mean? If you think back to last week, we talked about God's general revelation. General revelation refers to the things that all people can learn about God simply by existing in the world that he has made. Simply by observing the creation of his hands. Well, God's common grace is a somewhat similar idea. Common grace is the grace of God that all people in our world experience, regardless of whether or not all people acknowledge God as the source of it. For example, some have argued that the mere fact that we exist is proof of God's common grace. God was not lonely before he created the world. Being perfect, God had everything he could ever need in and of himself. So the fact that God made something outside of himself may be seen as an act of his grace. But past that, God's common grace is seen in the order and the beauty of our world. We talked about that last week as well. It's thanks to God's common grace that we have air to breathe. It's thanks to God's common grace that gravity keeps us from flying off the ground, but there's not too much of it that we would be crushed. It's thanks to God's common grace that the sun rises each day and sets each night, providing the correct amount of light and heat for our survival. God's common grace is not just seen in the creation itself, but it's even seen in the good activities of mankind. Thanks to God's common grace, men and women in the past, present, and future have made brilliant developments like vaccines and the wheel and artificial refrigeration and running water and countless other inventions and discoveries and developments that make life better that alleviates suffering for the common good of all mankind. And we can even see God's common grace in the fact that this world, though it is fallen due to mankind's sin, is not as bad as it could be. Again, our world is very much fallen. We don't doubt that for a second. But it's worth remembering that it could be worse than it is. But by God's common grace, it isn't. We see common grace in passages like Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Then a few verses later. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. 
You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45, that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then Paul says in Acts 14, verses 16 and 17, In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. Every living thing benefits from God's common grace. And it is displayed in all kinds of ways. Some we see, and some we praise God for, and some we take for granted. But in addition to God's common grace, we also see God's saving grace in the Bible. This is the grace the Apostle Paul talks about the most in the New Testament. This is the grace that we're typically referring to when we use the word in sermons and Bible studies and conversations. Now, sadly, not everyone experiences God's saving grace. If everyone did, everyone would believe in Jesus, because it's only through faith in Jesus that sinners are saved, and it is called saving grace. God's saving grace is the grace which moves us from unbelief to faith, From rebellion to worship, from sin to obedience, from rejection of God to adoration of God, from condemnation to forgiveness, from death to life. Saving grace is God's unmerited favor to save sinners. And it's accomplished by Jesus' broken body and shed blood on the cross. Paul says in Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This saving grace truly is a gift. It is an undeserved blessing. We asked earlier, why is it that humans need God's grace to begin with? Well, it's because of our sin. Because of our sin, we have no right, we have no claim to good standing with God, to peace with God, as Paul described it in Romans 5. It's by God's grace that Jesus died on the cross for sinners. It's by God's grace that we recognize our need for Jesus to begin with. And it's by God's grace that we are reconciled to him, even though we were once his enemies. Paul says again in Romans 3, part of verse 23, going to verse 25. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We'll come back to that word propitiation. And then again in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When we understand that our salvation is of God's grace, we understand that we have no room for boasting. So we've seen God's common grace. We've seen God's saving grace. But the final big category to consider is God's sustaining grace. This gets past the initial grace we are shown when we are first saved. The grace we are given the moment we believe in Jesus. That's what we mean when we use the word justified. God's sustaining grace is what empowers and encourages us to continue following Jesus long after that first moment of conversion. God's sustaining grace is seen in the work of the Holy Spirit, slowly but surely, ongoingly, sanctifying us to look more and more like Jesus. God's sustaining grace is what helps us through the ups and the downs, the successes and the failures, the daily grind of faithfulness to Christ all the way to the end, when we die or when he returns. In 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read that our salvation is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's sustaining grace can be an incredible source of comfort and peace and reassurance for believers. Our salvation is kept in heaven for us. We are being guarded through faith for that salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We are not initially saved by grace, but then grown by our works, or matured by our works, or made worthy by our works. We are saved by God's grace. We are sanctified by God's grace. The beginning of our walk with Christ is of God's grace. The end of our walk with Christ is brought about by God's grace. And everything good in between is brought about by God's grace. So our very life, our eternal salvation, our ongoing sanctification are all a result of God's grace, his unmerited favor, the undeserved blessing that we have been given through what Christ has done for us. It is all of his grace. God gets all the credit. Last week, we read several powerful quotes about God's greatness from the mouths of early Christians. Well, unsurprisingly, Christians before us like to talk about God's grace in addition to God's greatness. In the 4th century, a man named Gregory of Nyssa once said, God's grace is the source of everything good and fair. Everything good and fair. Augustine, around the same time, we quoted him last week. Augustine says, Without grace, men can do nothing good. 
when they either think or wish or love or act. We are utterly dependent upon God's grace. And then more recently, back just a few hundred years, the Methodist John Wesley said, the grace of God gives us everything. It gives us everything. As Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Well, what do we have that we did not receive? Apart from God's grace, we have nothing good. Apart from God's grace, we have nothing worth having. So we spent a lot of time thinking about what God's grace is up to this point. But what is God's grace not? Well, God's grace is not some impersonal force. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we Christians speak of God's grace as some vague, mysterious, unexplainable power that kind of just hovers in the atmosphere, almost separating it from God himself. But we need to remember that grace is an action on God's part. Grace is an attribute of who God is. We Christians believe in the power of grace more than anybody. But we must remember that it comes directly from God himself. God's grace is also not evidence that God takes sin lightly. God's grace is not evidence that God takes sin lightly. Remember what we read in Romans 3. Jesus offered himself as a propitiation for our sins. A propitiation is a sacrifice that takes away wrath. In order for sinners like us to be shown grace, Jesus had to take the punishment for our sins upon himself in the form of crucifixion and death. God does not show sinners grace because sin isn't that big of a deal to him. God does not show sinners grace by overlooking our sin, pretending it didn't happen, or just being chill about it. God shows sinners grace by dealing with our sin in all its ugliness on the cross of Christ. And that makes God's grace that much more astounding. If you have a weak view of sin, God's grace loses so much of its power. And if you ever think that God takes sin lightly, just think back to the cross. Think back to Jesus' broken body and shed blood, and that will remind you that God does not take sin lightly. As Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 7, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Without the shedding of Christ's blood, there would be no forgiveness for our sins. There would be no grace for us. And on a related note, not only is God's grace not evidence that God takes sin lightly, God's grace is also not a license 
for us to take sin lightly. The fact that God is gracious to sinners does not give us permission or an excuse to pursue sin. God's grace is not a cheap voucher for us to cash in when we're in the mood to sin. It's not a backup plan. It's not a fallback. And if we treat God's grace as an opportunity to get away with the very sin that God saved us from, the very sin that Christ suffered and died for, then it's worth asking whether or not we ever truly understood God's grace at all. So we have an idea of what grace is. God's unmerited favor toward sinners. We see it as his common grace. We see his saving grace secured by Christ. And we see his sustaining grace as we follow Jesus long after we first believed. And we also have an idea of what grace isn't. It's not some vague and personal force. It's not evidence that God takes sin lightly. And it's not an excuse for us to take sin lightly. Now, this is good for us to know. But really, grace isn't just something we come to understand by reading about it or studying it or defining it. We truly come to understand God's grace by experiencing it. The late arriving workers of Jesus' parable in Matthew 20, 1 through 16, they experienced grace when the owner of the vineyard paid them a wage that they had not earned, which really makes it a gift, not a wage. The prodigal son of Luke 15 experienced grace when after pressuring his father for an early inheritance, blowing it all on wine, women, and song, and then returning home with his tail between his legs, he was welcomed back with open arms. The tax collector of Luke 18 experienced grace when he realized that he had no right to even look up to heaven when he prayed, beat his breast, and simply exclaimed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, but went home justified. The Apostle Peter experienced grace when after denying Jesus three times, he was restored to fellowship. And Jesus tasked him with feeding his sheep and leading his church. Saul, the persecutor of Christians, experienced grace when instead of being struck down by God on the road to Damascus, he was commissioned by God to serve Christ for the rest of his life as Paul the Apostle. Paul never forgot the power of God's grace because he never forgot the depth of his own sin. In 1 Timothy 1, even after a lifetime of suffering for Christ, Paul says that he is the foremost of sinners, the worst of sinners, but simultaneously rejoices that the grace of our Lord overflowed for him with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In addition to God's saving grace, Paul also experienced God's sustaining grace. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul shares his own personal experience of weakness and how he's learned that in his unique weakness, God's grace is sufficient and God's power is perfect. 
reading about or studying or defining God's grace is all well and good. It's great, and we should do it. But to truly understand how amazing it is, you have to experience it firsthand. John Newton, the original writer of the hymn Amazing Grace, had that experience. Newton was a sailor, if there ever was one, in all the worst possible ways, spent time as a slave, and eventually became a slave trader himself. He was known as a man of low character, bad reputation, and seemingly stuck in a life of sin. But Newton experienced God's grace when a vicious storm threatened to sink his ship. He repented of his sin, believed in Christ, got married, abandoned the slave trade, became an Anglican priest, and devoted much of his final years to advocating for the Slave Trade Act of 1807, which prohibited the slave trade in his home British Empire. And along the way, John Newton wrote the lyrics to Amazing Grace, those lyrics that we all know so well. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me, his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be, as long as life endures. Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. I pray that all of us, like John Newton, have come to experience God's amazing grace. As we said, we are all beneficiaries of God's common grace. But it's only by experiencing the saving grace of faith in Jesus Christ that our sins can be forgiven and we can be called sons and daughters of God. If you haven't experienced that saving grace, I pray that you would believe in Christ this morning. And if you've already experienced God's saving grace by faith in Jesus Christ, then I pray that you would be sustained by God's grace as well. And that you would follow him until the end. And after all the talk of God's grace in this sermon. I pray that we would find it just as amazing now. As we did the hour we first believed. That we would respond to it with humility and gratitude. Understanding that we have no room to boast. And that we would spend the rest of our days singing about God's amazing grace. For all to hear. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your grace.
So often when we think of your grace, we tend to think of just our salvation. And certainly that is the most overwhelming form of your grace that we experience. It's the grace that saves us. But at the same time, so much of what we have, everything good that we have, is all the result of your grace. It's all the result of your kindness and your generosity. Everything good is a result of your unmerited favor towards us. And so as we consider your grace, I pray that we would be just as taken aback by it now as we were that hour we first believed. That whether we've been following Christ for 50 years or 20 years or 10 years or a month, I pray that we would be just as amazed by your grace now as we ever were before. I pray that we would remember constantly that we are saved and we are sustained by your grace. What a joy that is, what a relief that is, what an assurance that is to know that it's not just your grace that begins our walk with Christ, but your grace continues our walk with Christ. And your grace sustains us to the end of our walk with Christ. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your unmerited favor. Thank you that even though all of us can agree with Paul that we are the worst of sinners, you are a most gracious God. We love you. We worship you. We thank you for Jesus Christ who bought our grace with his body and his blood. And Lord, we glorify you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.